0: Welcome to We Have This Hope. My name is Emily Curzon. This is a podcast about the study of scripture, the art of remembering, and the practice of telling. On the show, we'll explore the ways God calls his people to remember by studying scripture together and we'll hear individual stories of hope anchored in the beautiful and ancient practice of remembering. I'm so glad you're here. Welcome back. We're in our spaces series today, and that is a lot of S's, spaces series. We're talking about the spaces we occupy. I hope you've been following along with us this fall as we explore the ways God meets us in our physical space. Exploring this question that I kicked around all summer, does God care about the spaces we occupy? I think he does but I wanted to investigate it in Scripture, and this week we're looking at the physical spaces where we do our work. Before we jump in, I want to first say that I'm trying very much to make this episode not be about unpacking or articulating some complex theology of work or works. There'll certainly be glimmers of that, and I'll link some resources in the show notes that I like. but what I really want to accomplish is something a little bit simpler. I just want to look at examples of workplace in scripture and ask the question, how does God use this to build his kingdom? What patterns do we see? What themes or connections can we make in the way God meets people in their spaces of work? I'm adding one more layer to it because the majority of you listening are women and I'm a woman. And I care a great deal about biblical interpretation of the role of women, particularly when it comes to kingdom work. To put it more plainly, I'm talking about women teaching and leading. I believe the Bible paints a clear picture of mutual submission between men and women and that Jesus and the new Testament authors elevate women to these types of teaching and leading roles over and over again. So if you'd like to join me down that rabbit hole, send me a DM, and I can overload you with some scholarly research on this topic. That being said, the stories we're zooming in on today are women in the context of their kingdom work. We're gonna start with the garden, we're gonna end with new creation, and in between, we're gonna look at Deborah and Lydia. I'm glad you're here. Let's get started. Work and rest started in the garden right away in genesis chapter one we learn that god made man and woman in his image and he put them in the garden with some specific jobs to do this is genesis one twenty-eight through 30 it says god blessed them and said to them be fruitful and increase in number fill the earth and subdue it rule over the fish in the sea and the birds of the air and over every living creature that moves on the ground Then God said, I give you every seed bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it. They will be yours for food and to all the beasts of the earth and all the birds of the air and all the creatures that move along the ground, everything that has breath of life in it, I give you every green plant for food. And it was so. And then in Genesis two, verse 15, listen to this. It says the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and take care of it to work it and take care of it okay this was all before the snake part of the story that we all know so what this tells us is that work was part of god's original design that he called good the hebrew word being used here is h5647 forgive my pronunciation avad or abad but i think you'd put a little vad with it i don't know avad And in some definitions, this word is linked not only to work, but to serve and to worship, which I think is really beautiful. There seems to be a connection in the idea of working as worshiping or stewarding that which God has called good. It seems even more that God created work, which is a funny thing for me to think about Since much of the content I've seen lately in like faith domains is about rest. We, we know now, yes, rest is good. I need more rest, but it seems like we don't talk much about work also being good. So with this in mind, let's meet our first biblical character. I'm so pumped to talk about her. We find her in a place, in a physical context of work, and that's Deborah. We're going to pick up in Judges. I have to admit that prior to preparing for this episode the story of deborah is one that i just haven't studied that much i knew it generally as like a sunday school story but you guys deborah is a boss like i got so excited tonight at dinner trying to talk about deborah that ella and i looked her up in the action bible because i wanted to see how she was portrayed and ella was the only one who was really that excited with me but all that to say i want to be like deborah so Before we read Judges 4, I want to give you a little bit of context so you know where we are in the biblical story. So here's what's happened. The Israelites have escaped their slavery in Egypt. They've entered the promised land with Joshua. And scripture says now they've started to do, quote, evil in the eyes of the Lord. And we see this over and over again. And when they do this, he gives them over to some foreign conqueror. Then they cry out to god and he sends a judge or a prophet to help them and there's peace for a period of years and this is what's happening when we meet deborah she's going to be the third judge or prophet in this series of events right before gideon if you know that story and in her story god has given the israelites over to a canaanite king named jabin and the leader of his army is sisera So I'm going to pick up and read just a few verses to you from Judges 4, starting verse 4. Verse 4. Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lapidoth, was leading Israel at that time. She held court under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim. And the Israelites came to her to have their disputes decided. She sent for Barak son of Abinoam from Kadesh in Naphtali and said to him, The Lord the God of Israel commands you, Go and take with you 10,000 men of Naphtali and Zebulun and lead the way to Mount Tabor. I will lure Sisera, the commander of Jabin's army, with his chariots and his troops to the Kishon River and give him into your hands. Barak said to her, If you go with me, I will go, but if you don't go with me, I won't go. Very well, Deborah said, I will go with you, but because of the way you're going about this, the honor will not be yours, for the Lord will hand Sisera over to a woman. So Deborah went with Barak to to Kadesh, where he summoned Zebulun and Naphtali. 10,000 men followed him, and Deborah also went with them. Skipping down to verse 14. Then Deborah said to Barak, Go, this is the day the Lord has given Sisera into your hands. Has not the Lord gone ahead of you? So Barak went down Mount Tabor, followed by 10,000 men. At Barak's advance, the Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and army by the sword, and Sisera abandoned his chariot and fled on foot. But Barak pursued the chariots and army as far as Herosheth Hagoyim. All the troops of Sisera fell by the sword. Not a man was left. Okay, somebody give me bonus points for pronouncing all of those words that I did not practice before hitting record. (laughs) Anyway, let's answer some basic Sunday school questions about what we just heard. What did it say? Okay, here's what we learned. Deborah is a married woman, which I think is interesting and important. She's a prophetess, and she's leading Israel. This is huge. She holds court. In a place called the Palm of Deborah, and people are coming to her to settle their disputes. She's a judge. She partners with a guy named Barak to overthrow Sisera's 900 chariot army and thereby oust King Jabin. And at Barak's request, she marches with and commands the army of 10,000 men, and they conquer the whole army and they overthrow the Canaanite king. So, right away, there are some things that stand out. The first is obviously that Deborah is a woman who is serving as judge, prophet, and military leader. Remember I said she was a boss. I don't think I need to explain how wildly unique this was culturally. I also wonder if it's even more unique given that she's a married woman and we get really no information regarding her husband's role, status, or profession. She is the central figure here with power and influence we also see that in her role as a prophetess she has an intimacy with god that's what it denotes to me she's speaking on his behalf to the people therefore she must have a relationship she's a woman who possesses wisdom and it's obvious to the people okay now in terms of physical spaces because that's what we're talking about today deborah's holding court in a space we learn is called the Palm of Deborah. Well, what in the world does that mean? And there's actually some debate out there about what this space actually is. So I want to tell you a little bit about that debate because I think it's interesting. Matthew Henry, which is a super, super old commentary that's pretty widely used. This is what he had to say. He said, either she had her house under that tree, a mean habitation, which would couch under a tree or, she had her judgment seat in the open air under the shadow of that tree which was an emblem of justice that she sat there to administer which will thrive and grow against opposition as palms under pressure another commentary linked this location to the possible burial site of another deborah Rebecca's nurse, who was also named Deborah in the old Testament. Now this Deborah was the nurse or the maid to Rebecca, who, if you remember, was the wife of Jacob and the mother of Isaac. And she, this Deborah gets a brief shout out in Genesis. She's buried under an Oak tree after she dies. And some commentaries wonder if our prophet Deborah is holding court in the same location. Who knows? I just thought that was kind of interesting. Her other physical context is a battlefield. This is the other place she's doing work. And let's not miss that. Barak asks her to go with him because he's either fearful or he wants her support and expertise. Maybe some combination of both. Scripture doesn't tell us explicitly either way. She marches with 10,000 men and she's the one who says go. When all is said and done, the battle is over and they've conquered King Jabin. And Deborah's final act of work is worship. I just think that's so cool. Remember how in the garden, we talked about that word, having a link to this, the word work, having a link to this idea of worship. And that's what Judges 5 is. This next chapter in Judges is a song that she and Barak sing, a song of worship when the conquest has ended. So why did it matter? Deborah's work is... Conducted in several places. But what we see clearly is that it's largely done in the open, the shade of a palm tree in an open court, the battlefield on top of a mountain pulsing with over 10,000 men. And in these very public contexts, Deborah's wisdom and worship are the things that are on display. And God uses her work to influence, to restore, and to save God's kingdom and ultimately bring peace. Pretty cool. Now we're going to go onward to Lydia, another boss in scripture. Lydia is a character who appears in the new Testament a few brief times, but whose work bears significance to the early church in a way that I think can easily be missed without a little cultural context. Here's the lead up to Acts 16 where we're gonna meet her. Paul and Silas, probably Luke, are on a missionary journey and Paul has a vision about traveling to Macedonia to preach the gospel. They wake up the next day and they head that way. And this is where we pick up in verse 12. It says, from there we traveled to Philippi, a Roman colony in the leading city of that district of Macedonia. And we stayed there several days. On the Sabbath, we went outside the city gate to the river, where we expected to find a place of prayer. We sat down and began to speak to the women who had gathered there. One of those listening was a woman from the city of Thyatira named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth. She was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. When she and the members of her household were baptized, she invited us to her home. If you consider me a believer in the Lord, she said, come and stay at my house. And she persuaded us. Okay, what does it say? We learned a lot in those verses, a lot that probably could get overlooked. So here's my list. The setting is a leading city in a Roman occupied colony. And that is so important a leading city in a Roman occupied colony. There's a prayer gathering that's happening just outside the city gate, probably because it wasn't allowed to happen inside the city gate. And Lydia of Thyatira is there in attendance. We don't know why. And she's called two things. She's called a dealer in purple cloth and a worshiper of God. She hears the gospel. She responds to the gospel and then she takes the message back to her family where they also are baptized. This one I really like. She persuades Paul, which I just have to imagine was not an easy thing to do. She persuades Paul and the other missionaries to use her home as the centerpiece of their activities while they're in Philippi. So in other words, she's hosting the first house church in Philippi. And if you continue on in the chapter, verse 40 tells us this continues to happen. It says in verse 40, after Paul and Silas came out of the prison, so they've been to prison, they went to Lydia's house where they met with the brothers and sisters and encouraged them. Then they left. Why did this matter? And what about her work, right? So here's some thoughts. Lydia is a compellingly countercultural figure. There's no mention of her spouse or father, and she's obviously the owner and the head of her household, opening up her seemingly spacious home to a scandalous bunch of Messiah worshipers who, on their second stay at her home, were recently released from prison. She's a dealer in purple cloth. What does this mean? It means essentially that Lydia was a businesswoman to the wealthy elite. Because the only members of society who could afford to buy textiles made of that expensive purple Tyrian dye, those would be her customers. Now, the space she occupies, the physical context where she does her work, this seems pretty diverse. We can find her in the marketplace with her network of customers. We could find her running a home, a house church, hosting missionary guests, and we can find her at likely covert prayer meetings outside of the city gates. She's got a broad resume and one that's not wasted. If we ask the question, how does God use these spaces to meet with Lydia? The first and most poignant answer is that Lydia hears and responds to the gospel message while she's in these spaces, while she's doing her work. And her response to this encounter with the gospel is to invite others in, her family first, and then her home to travelers, evangelists, and brothers and sisters in this new faith. And this transforms her everyday context, right? It's a detail that's easily missed. She becomes a leader in the early church and her home is the hub of church growth. See what I mean by her story just being lost if you breeze through the verses about it? Her work and her space matters greater in the life of the church. Makes me wonder things like what would have happened in the life of the church, church capital C, had Lydia not been outside the city gate. Speaking of cities this is where we'll start to transition, where we'll start to bring things all around. Because you see, work started in the garden and it will end in the city. What I'm talking about is the story of the Bible coming to its good, good end in the New Jerusalem. Now, in Revelation 21, this is where we get sort of the famous, infamous words that John sees a new heaven and a new earth and the holy city the New Jerusalem is coming down, from heaven and he said, he hears a loud voice that says, look, God's dwelling places among the people. It's a gorgeous passage of scripture. This is where the holy city comes smack down. Everything will be different. There's no more death, no more pain. The old order of things is done. In other words, the way we always did things is different, it's gonna be different forever. And then in chapter 22 of Revelation, we get this beautiful picture of a river flowing from the throne of God in fill into the great city. And this is picking up in verse three. Listen in, see if you can catch what the work of God's people will be in this city. It says, no longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the lamb will be in the city and his servants will serve him. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun, for the Lord God will give them light, and they will reign forever and ever. What's the work in the new city? The work is serving and reigning. Did you catch that? His servants will serve him, and they will reign forever and ever. The Greek origins of the words used here for work are G3000, if you want to look it up convey sort of the same ideas as that garden work, serving and worshiping. This idea of reigning is kingly power being exercised. That's the work of God's people to do. The book of Revelation is a vision by John, looking at the future reign of Christ in the new Jerusalem. And in this vision, God's people are given authority to serve and reign. We have work, that we will do and the physical location of that work is in the center of the city. Our work is flowing from Christ. It has distinction and it has purpose and it's good and it's always in the light. Our work started in the garden and it will end in the city where God makes everything new. So why does this still matter? That's the question I always like to end on when I'm looking at scripture. We've looked at these incredible stories of sort of heroic women, God meeting them in their workplace. We're looking at God's idea of work being good, whether we're in a courtroom on a battlefield, a covert prayer meeting, the trading floor, or at home with our families. Why does it still matter? I think it's that God is using our work for his kingdom. And that's always been his design. God's partnering with us, using us, not because he needs us, but because he loves us and he knows that work is for our good. makes me think of Ephesians two, where it says we're God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Many of you listening are not wildly far from my season in life. And if that's the case, you know I'm fresh off the heels of the diaper changing season. And let me say just like very plainly that that work didn't make me feel like Deborah on the mountaintop commanding 10,000 men into battle. (laughs) And neither does correcting homework pages or teaching my own personal gaggle of kindergartners how to sound out their vows. But when I slow down, like long enough to think deeply, I can remember that this is kingdom work and it's good work. I can remember when I was still working in a hospital full-time devoting my everyday to discharge plans and helping people navigate system barriers. that, That too was kingdom work. And it was good even on the days I wanted to pull my hair out and I watched the clock. I read a book a few years ago called Domestic Monastery by a catholic priest named Ronald Rolheiser and it changed the way i viewed motherly work forever or really work forever in the book he likens or rather like argues that the experience of motherhood and its many interruptions is holy work like that of a monk responding to a monastic bell and ultimately he says that just like a monk must drop everything he's doing to respond to prayer when the bell rings So does a mother each time her work is interrupted by the demands of her children. He says, this type of work is holy work because it reminds us that our time is not our own. Oof, I've thought about that this week. (laughs) So I wonder today in closing, as you consider your work, whatever that may be, and the space you occupy when you do your work, Can you see what holy thing God is doing in you and through you? What is your monastic bell reminding you that your time is not your own, but that your work matters in the hands of God, that it's not wasted in God's kingdom. Consider asking God to give you insight to what that might be and maybe write it down this week. I want to end with this quote from, a book, from the book that I think is good encouragement for when we don't see our work as holy or good, when we wonder if it matters in the grand scheme of God's story. So hear these words as we close and be encouraged. Your work is good. It's part of God's design. He made it just for you. Here's the quote. Go to your cell and your cell will teach you everything you need to know. Stay inside your vocation, inside your commitments, inside your legitimate, conscriptive duties, inside your church, inside your family, and they will teach you where life is found and what love means. Be faithful to your commitments and what you are ultimately looking for will be found there.